Central. My name is Trina Mays. I'm one of your women shepherds. I will be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. <clears throat> Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Remen the Berothite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. As they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Remen, the Berothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, which wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried him in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Well, praise the Lord. I think you ought to respond by saying amen, right? Let's do it one more time. Praise the Lord. Amen. What a good morning this is. I know it's rainy outside, but it is good, definitely good to be in the house of the Lord with God's people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Guys, we've got to do this again because I think we've been away for a while, so you don't understand the interaction part here. Well, you're here for that, right? So if I say something, you can say and respond by saying amen. Amen? amen. amen. All right, let's do it one more time. Praise the Lord. Amen. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 Church, we're so glad you could join us. I know a lot of you want to be here, cannot be here. And again, we're glad that God has brought us here. Amen? Amen. Amen. We, we're glad that we could see your face. As much as you missed us, we definitely miss you. And um, I get the privilege of preaching to you today. I know Pastor Howard is like dying, itching to preach to our folks again. So he'll preach next week. But I get this chance to preach to our audience, um, or congregation, not our audience, congregation. We keep on saying audience because of the live stream, but the congregation is what we are called to be, the local church, the body of believers gathering together to worship the Lord. Amen? Amen. Church, October is here. I know it's been a while since last we gathered. It's about six or seven months now. 
And as you can tell, there's a cooler weather, cooler temperature is here. The fall leaves are falling, and uh, definitely time has changed. The season has come and gone, and we're in the fall season. A season that many of us love, many of us look forward to, many of us long for with the cooler weather, sweater weather, as we will say, and to be able to uh, enjoy the outdoors a little bit more during this time. And during the time of fall, one other holiday or a season that our children look forward to, and perhaps a lot of us look forward to as well, and that is Halloween. And if your household is anything like mine, figuring out who you're going to dress up as is not an easy topic. It is a topic that gets planned out not only weeks ahead, but perhaps even the month ahead. Immediately after last Halloween was over, the question of who, are you, who do you want to become and dress up as and go trick-or-treating is one of the things that we at Kim household take it very seriously. And there were many contenders in this year's costume of choice for my son, Seth. And again, I asked permission to share this from him because now he's five, so he's able to tell that I'm talking about him. Um, but in the end, one character stood out above them all. When we asked our child, uh, our son, who do you want to be on this Halloween season? Who do you want to dress up as? And Seth, after some time of pondering, exclaimed, I want to be a cat boy. And if you don't know who that is, that's fine. It's not a Batman character. If you think it's Batman, then perhaps you're a little bit out of his age range. Uh, if you do know who Catboy is, you know how popular this character is. The main thing you ought to know is he's the main character of a popular children's show, and he is the character that all these young boys love to become. He's the main character, and he is the one um, that brings whatever joy out of my child's heart. And that's pretty typical, isn't it? Most often our children want to be the main character of the show that they watch. And we could talk about why representation matters because of that. But this is not about that. But what I want to point out is our children's tendency to draw ourselves to the main character is something that not only our children tend to do, but something that we all tend to do as well. Even when we read through the scripture like today. When we read 2 Samuel, and we've been following the first Samuel for now, we know the main character is David. It is pretty clear because God says he's going to be my king. And the whole process, as we see from 1 Samuel not to 2 Samuel, is Saul, the first king, is gone. The, the, the main hero, David, is becoming a king. In chapter 5 that is coming next week, we'll talk about David finally after all these years of running away from Saul, all these events that's happening around him, he's able to become the king that God calls him to be. But before we get to chapter 5, before we talk about the kingship of David that is to come, the chapter 4 introduces to us or brings our attention to two characters that often that we gloss over. It's almost like a footnote in the larger narrative of David's story. And it is our tendency for us to want to read about David and identify ourselves with David in many ways. And if you've been following our sermon series in 1 Samuel, especially Pastor Howard has brought light to many ways that David is not all that he's, out to, he's made to be. There's a lot of failures and flaws, not only the heroic faith 
um, of David that we ought to emulate, but also we also see his weaknesses that are on display. In chapter 4, as we look at this chapter, before we get to chapter 5, we find these two characters that gets used and abused. Another character, a five-year-old toddler who falls from the arms of his nurse to be crippled for the rest of his life. And why do I invite us to look at these two characters as we look forward to David, a king that is to come? I think a lot of times we could see our reflections, not only our good and bad in David, the main character, but I think the Bible is also intentional in showing us these two characters that really reflect our hearts as well in their circumstances and in their failures, in their trials, in their heartaches. As we examine these two characters in their brokenness of Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, we also see a reflection of our own brokenness reflected in them. And here is God's grace for us as we see these two characters. God's kingdom, as we see from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, is not only for the Davids of the world, but God's kingdom invites all the weary and burdened, like these two, and all of us, especially in this season, the season that we have endured and going to endure, weary and tired, God's kingdom invites you and I to come to the table with our king. So let's do that, shall we? As we look at these two characters, let's see how God's invitation, God's kingdom allows people like you and I, weary and burdened, to come and dine with our king. First thing that we see, first character we meet is Ishbosheth. And we find that there is justice for Ishbosheth of the world. American artist and filmmaker Andy Warhol termed the famous phrase, 15 minutes of fame. 15 minutes of fame, meaning that you are in the spotlight for a short time, and after a while, the person's fame is gone and forgotten. And if you were to describe someone who experiences the 15, 15 minutes of fame, Ishbosheth fits the bill perfectly. Life of Ishbosheth begins in chapter 3, as we saw in chapter 2, actually, when Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, as we saw last week, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Menahem, and he made him king over Gilead and Asherites and Zezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And it says, Ishbosheth, the Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years two years in between Saul's reign and David's reign. You see, Ishbosheth was the last living son of Saul. So what happens to him? As we saw last week, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, finds him and makes him a king. It says, the Bible is very explicit, he doesn't claim to the throne on his own, rather Abner takes him and makes him a king. But what happens soon after that? Abner, who was on his side, gets into a conflict with Ishbosheth, and he leaves him. He betrays him and makes a deal with David. Now Ishbosheth is without someone that made him into a king. Not to mention, this is this Abner guy, the biggest supporter, 
dies in chapter 3 at the hands of Joab. So here is Ishbosheth in chapter 4. His father is dead, his brothers are dead, and even the guy who made him a king, although he betrayed him, is dead. So when he hears this news of Abner's death, this is what chapter 4 describes the state of Ishbosheth is in. First one, it says, when Ishbosheth saw his son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. When it says his courage failed here, it literally means his both hands dropped. He lost his courage to go on. He lost his desire to do whatever he has to do next. This guy is paralyzed with fear and unknown of what is to come next. Not only becoming a king wasn't his choice, as we see here, he is ill-equipped to be the king. He was never in line to be the king. He was never mentioned as someone to take over for Saul when Saul dies. He wasn't groomed for it. He wasn't even in the picture before Saul and Jonathan died. He got forced into the, the politics of Abner's maneuvering, and after a blow-up with Abner, he's betrayed, left alone, used and abused by others without any support. And it gets, and it gets worse from there, doesn't it, for him? As we read in verse 2, it says, Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the other name was Rechab, sons of Rimon, the men of Benjamin from Beeroth. And if you remember, Saul is a Benjaminite. So verse 2 is reminding us the captain of his army, captain of Saul's army, not only so, Benjaminite, his own clan's people, his own tribe betrays Ishbosheth at the darkest moment and darkest hour and takes his life. Not only this guy did not want to be a king, but he is betrayed by his own people and his life ends at their hands. It is no wonder Ishbosheth name means man of shame, humiliation. Man of shame, humiliation. The church, as tragic as Ishbosheth life is, I think we could really see our reflection in Ishbosheth. Shame and humiliation. How often life, even those who we love and trusted, become sometimes our main reason for pain. How often we have been betrayed, hurt, left, abused in our relationships, in our jobs, in our families even. The people that we have trusted are the ones that hurt, often hurt us deeper than not. And in this political season, how many of us are getting those calls, letters, that are saying, I am here for you. I'm going to do what is right for you. And all they say is, I want your vote. And you're often pulled left and right by this candidate and that candidate, all while promising something. But we all know, not all, but many are empty words. And we're torn. We're pitted against each other. Even our faith 
is used and abused. How we can long, how we can identify ourselves with Ishbosheth in many ways, how we have been abused and used by those around us and the sin that impacts us deeply. Perhaps some of us could say, well, Ishbosheth deserved this. After all, his part in becoming a king, he takes the throne, right? Yes, we see that he is sin can definitely be involved in it. But the point of Ishbosheth is this. As we see Ishbosheth's life ends, the two men that betrays him now tries to take advantage of the situation for themselves and goes to David with the head of Ishbosheth. And that's what we see in verse 7. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of Arabah and all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Notice how they were this. It says, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. And here, the two men that is abused and used and betrayed brings the head of Ishbosheth to David and spins it, almost like theologically too, right? Saying like, hey, look at what God has done for you. Look at what this great thing, you don't have to do it, but I did it, but wait, it was God's will. Let me do this for you. Look at what a great thing that God is doing. And look at what David says in response to Ishbosheth. And here we find justice for him. Verse 9, but David answers Rechab and Bana and his brother and the son of Rimon the Berarites, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and though he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men like you right, have killed a righteous man, righteous man, in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David goes to behead and kill these two guys who tries to use this situation for themselves. Church, what we see in David is the type of king that is to come. For all his failures, we see a glimpse of the righteous king in David, who would not use the vile and evil actions of others for his own gain. And David, in his own words, says, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man seeks justice for Ishbosheth? David is not going to build his kingdom on the unjust killings, even of his fiercest rival, as we even saw again and again with Saul, Abner, and now with Ishbosheth. Again, the Bible is giving us a picture of what is to come again and again and again, and theme is going coming out again and again and again. Here we find a glimpse of justice, glimpse of God's chosen king in his kingdom. Church, we're reminded that the, for justice of God, Christ is sent. As we see in Christ, the perfect David is here. And in Christ, we find God's kingdom for the weary and burdened, the one who is ashamed and humiliated like Ishbosheth, the one who's taken advantage of even those who suffer consequences of our own sin. What we find in Christ is the righteous king that says, I'm here for the righteousness of God. And in Christ, we find his kingdom, his life, 
governed by the divine justice, divine righteousness, when sin is justly punished. And in order to do so, even in our own humiliation, even in our own shame, God sends his son to die on the cross. So our shame and humiliation is dealt once and for all. Scripture reminds us to the point of death, to the point of humiliation, Christ comes so that you and I can be in the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. Are you feeling just like Ishbosheth, shamed, humiliated in this world? Church, come, all who are weary and burdened. This is God's kingdom for those who desperately desire God's justice to reign. We move on to the second character that's introduced in this chapter. Not only we see Ishbosheth, a man of shame and humiliation, we find Mephibosheth. There is hope for Mephibosheth in this text. A phrase that we often use in the case of Mephibosheth is this, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And according to Cambridge Dictionary, this is what it means. In a situation where something bad happens to you because you are unlucky. We know that Bible is not based on luck, but it says also um, not because you do anything wrong. And the people chef's story in chapter 4 fits this perfectly, doesn't it? He is at the wrong place at the wrong time. Sandwiched between Ishbosheth's story is a short description of Jonathan's remaining son, Mephibosheth. And this is a tragic story. Verse 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and his, she fled in her haste. He fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. A tragedy and the impact of Saul and Jonathan extends to his family. Not only Mephibosheth loses his grandfather and father overnight through a horrendous accident, he loses the usage of his limbs. He becomes crippled for the rest of his life. And I want to make sure and make it very clear the text is not highlighting the disability here as a curse as a result of an accident caused by the nurse fleeing in haste. Rather, the reason why the text highlights the inability of Mephibosheth to walk, being crippled, is to highlight the fact that Mephibosheth, the last remaining descendant of Saul, cannot take a place of kingship. Again, this chapter is in anticipation of chapter 5 of David's kingship. Ishbosheth, the Saul's son, is dead. Mephibosheth, the last remaining heir in the Saul's kingdom, is crippled, is not able to take the place of kingship. It's not highlighting disability as a curse, but highlighting inability to take the kingship at the time. But again, as we look at the life of Mephibosheth, we could see the reflections of our hearts and our struggles of today. Tossed back and forth in the struggles of life and oftentimes the consequences not only of our sin, 
but at the sins of the others, we're impacted and hurt by the implications to the point of feeling paralyzed at times, don't we not? Our sin is enough for us to suffer from, but the sins of the others impact us so deeply today. We long for justice, but we also long and cry out for hope. In the case of Mephibosheth, who has to live with the consequences of the father's and the grandfather's death for the rest of his life. And the question is, where is hope for Mephibosheth? Where is hope for this character, and why is he noted here? You need to read a little bit further ahead to see the life of Mephibosheth coming back again. His story does not end as a footnote in chapter 4, actually. If you look forward to chapter 9, Mephibosheth reappears again. After David is firmly established as a king of Israel, in chapter 9, David seeks out any remaining sons, any remaining descendants of Jonathan. And some may think, as we watch a lot of movies, you're thinking, okay, David is trying to make sure there's no one going to come for his throne and is going to establish himself. So any remaining heir to the rival kingship of Saul, he's going to wipe him out. That's what he's looking for. And that's what everyone is anticipating. And that's what we find in verse 6, when Mephibosheth thinks that's why David finds him. Chapter 9, verse 6 says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Then here Mephibosheth, trembling before the king with his life and balance. But notice what David says to him in verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And verse 13 says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Church, did you hear that? Mephibosheth, the last remaining descendant of Saul. His mere presence alone can become a threat to David. And later on, he does a little bit, rebels. But here, his presence alone can be a threat to David's kingship. But he's rather invited, along with the rest of David's own sons and daughters, to dine at the table with the king. And no wonder the name of Mephibosheth means. You know what the name of Mephibosheth means? It means the one who destroys shame. Mephibosheth's name means end of shame. Ishbosheth meant man of shame. Mephibosheth means end of shame. In David, the Mephibosheth finds hope in his shame, end of his shame. Now in David, not only he finds the end of his shame, but he finds a seat at the king's table to dine with the king. So it's one thing that we long for as we gather together like this is to come to the Lord's Supper, to the table Christ invites us. And for those who place our faith in Christ, you are invited at God's table to dine with our King at Jesus' expense. 
And this is God's invitation and our hope through this text. We, Mephibosheth, can come and are invited to the king's table again. We who are paralyzed both by effects of our own sin, but also other sin, can find our hope and fellowship, not because of how well we have done, not because we were able to live up to and make this kingdom or to do great things for God's kingdom. We who are paralyzed in our own sin, lost in our own cause, we can come to king's table because God simply invites you to come. Oh, what joy it is when we're in the house of God. Oh, what joy it is as Mephibosheths, we can be present in God's house to be invited to God's table, not on my own account, but to be free to come sit in God's house under the washing of the grace of the cross. He invites us, prepares the table before us, and this is for a place for all Mephibosheths in the world, where our humiliation, our shame, our sin comes to die. You know, so many of us run when we sin. One of the things that I struggle most as a pastor of a church, as a pastor over shepherding, is when there's sin involved, we long for our people to come running to the cross. But when there's sin involved, we often find our people running away from God, almost saying, let's not dig that up. That's in the past. We don't want to deal with that. Rather than running to our Heavenly Father, we run away from our Heavenly Father. But if you understand, this table is for all the sinners, all those who struggle in our failures, all the Mephibosheths of the world. We will not run away from our king, but we will rather run in our brokenness, in our broken hearts. We'll run to our king who invites us, not only invites us, prepares a table before us so you can dine at the foot of the cross. Stop running away from our God this morning. Stop running away into your sin or the excuses. Better come. All who are weary and burdened, this is God's table. This is God's table. Finally, we come to David. We saw Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. And again, of course, there's David. And this story is a coronation of David, kingship that is to come. And we find grace for the Davids of the world. And David is the opposite of the 15 minutes of shame, of fame, isn't he? He becomes a king, famous king at that. He's also quite opposite of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. He's rather known for being at the right place at the right time, right? And in David, we find this grace, not only for David, but for all who is in God's kingdom, which David pictures for us in this text. You see, again, David's kingdom is a kingdom that is ruled by justice and righteousness. David's kingdom that he's ushering in is a kingdom that will invite even his enemies to dine at the table with the king. 
His kingdom will be led by a man after God's own heart, not by his own accord, but because God's heart is with him. And again, in David, we find the type of Christ's reflection of Jesus' kingdom, his invitation to belong to his kingdom, to join him in relationship, to place our faith in this benevolent king. And that's the invitation we find this morning, do we not? Matthew 11 speaks of, Come to me, all who are labor, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is invitation of our Christ, our King. Take my yoke upon you, learn, lean, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, he speaks in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs, for the Ishbosheth and Mephibosheths of the heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in his own words in Psalm 23, Psalm of David, here's what David proclaims, praising God for the protection and provision. Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Church, in all this, what we find is not only justice and hope, but deeper grace at that. We saw Ishbosheth, name meaning shame, humiliation, Mephibosheth, end of humiliation. And I get it. That's why we don't name our children Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, right? Not only we can pronounce it, but how many Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth you have met? But how many Davids have we met? You know why? You know why, what David means, name of David, what it means? David's name means beloved, beloved of God. And this is a real grace that we find. Real grace is much deeper than justice against those who hurt us. Real grace is much deeper than receiving an invitation to dine at the table with our king. Real grace, as we find, as we see in the kingdom of David and David, is that who we are, our identity, is completely transformed when we are in relationship with our benevolent king. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth of the heart and come and become David's beloved of God. Apostle Paul, in his letter to Romans, in the context of God's sovereign choice to choose his own people, Quoting Hosea, he cites, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. David's. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Paul again reminds us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That means, again, church, when you are in Christ, you who are Ishbosheth, ashamed, humiliated, is transformed to be God's beloved. That means when you are in Christ, those who are Mephibosheths in the heart, afflicted, seeking to end shame and humiliation in our hearts, is again transformed as God's beloved. And you know who can do that? Who could transform your shame, embracing the afflicted, the paralyzed in fear in heart? One who could do that is Christ, 
our King. Only Jesus can save. His grace is able to transform. His grace is the only thing that gives us hope in the hopeless world. This is the gospel, church. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth find justice for injustice done against them. That's the gospel message for us. And this is the gospel for us too. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth find hope, hope, and seat at the table with our king in our brokenness. In our shame, you could confidently come to the table of Christ, not because your week was great, your seven month was awesome, but because God invites you to come in your brokenness, to come to dine at the table with our king. That's the gospel. And this is the gospel. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth of our hearts can find and can be given a new identity, be transformed as beloved not by our own account, but because when he sees us, if you're in Christ, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And now you're called beloved, his own child, because of what he has done in one true righteous king. Church, when the Halloween day comes, my son will put on his costume of his choice. And he will pretend to be a cat boy. He will have the biggest smile on his face. And he will pretend to be the superhero that this character portrays to be. And you know what the reality is? Cat boy is really popular. Um, and there will be lots of cat boys out there on Halloween day. Many, many children under age five came to my door last year dressed as cat boys, and I was able to actually name all the characters of that show and other shows that day. Lots of cat boys out there. Lots of many characters, want-to-be's out there. But you know, for his daddy, he's the apple of his eyes. He may not be the main character of the show, but for his daddy, he's the only one his daddy will focus on. He is my catboy. He is my beloved child whom I am well pleased. He is my beloved son. And no matter who he pretends to be, he is my beloved. You in Christ are adopted as such. Child of God, beloved. Oh, Ishbosheth. Oh, Mephibosheth of the world. Tired and weary, come. Come, oh, beloved sons and daughters of come. Come, oh, beloved sons and daughters of God. Come find grace at the table prepared before you. Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come humbly before you in our own brokenness, in our own shame. Lord, we confess that many times, in many ways, our own sin has contributed to our shame and suffering, just as much as shame and suffering brought on by sins of the others. Father, this past six, seven months has been pain, to say the least. Not only 
of coronavirus pandemic and the fears of unknown, losing our loved ones. But the racial injustice that we see this nation being turmoil again and again, and the brokenness that this election season brings, as we're reminded again that, Lord, we were meant for heaven, not of this world. But, Lord, we come as broken, shamed, humiliated, to come to this table, to this place, to the feet of the cross, because we find hope, we find justice, and ultimately grace at the feet of the cross. We pray that for all of us as we come, transform our hearts so we could play our, place our faith in our King, who is benevolent, loving God, who invites us again and again. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.